0: My mind was blown because I was doing like I had this 20 person weekend workshop that I charged 1000 a head for and I'd make, you know, I'd bring in 20,000 in a weekend and the SaaS was doing like 2000 a month at the time.
1: Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. hello my friend welcome back to creative elements if you've been listening to this show for a while you may see a pattern emerging from the creators that i've interviewed regardless of platform just about every creator i talk to on this show references writing as an essential part of their business and more often than not they talk about email as well email is one of the oldest aspects of the internet itself And usually the oldest aspects of something are the first pieces to be innovated on or even eliminated. But email just seems to be this piece of the digital toolkit that isn't going away. Even with messaging platforms like Slack and Discord or social media platforms, email seems to be here to stay. And if you spend some time talking to creators about email, how they utilize it, and where they've learned some of their more advanced techniques, chances are they will reference today's guest. Brennan Dunn calls himself an email marketer, but to me, he's more like a digital unicorn. He can code. He's a great web designer. He understands sales psychology. He makes incredibly well-produced online courses, and he even had a podcast for a while. But at the core of all of Brennan's work is incredible innovation in the form of email.
0: Email marketing automation to me is the ultimate culmination of creativity because I get to do with like persuasion and and sales copy and. and stuff like that along with the stuff that makes the programmer me really happy like being able to do stuff with conditional logic
1: this really started with brennan's blog double he realized that there were all kinds of different freelancers a problem that i found with freelancing school as well you have designers developers copywriters coaches consultants marketers on and on And with so many different identities, it was hard for him to make it really clear on his website that his articles, his courses, and his other content could help any freelancer. But he had a breakthrough and realized with some basic coding, he could personalize his emails on the fly to speak directly towards the reader. I could just focus on that. I could use language like
0: fees or something that would work for them, whereas, you know, budget might work for designers or something like that. And I could just tweak bits and pieces so it's a little more specific to them.
1: As we'll hear in the interview, that had an immediate and meaningful impact on revenue. Then he went beyond email. He wanted to learn about the reader when they landed on his webpage, but before they had even subscribed. He built some custom code so that his website could personalize messages on the fly too. That code eventually became a software platform called WriteMessage, which Brennan focuses the majority of his time on today. But Double Your Freelancing not only continues to exist, but it continues to generate meaningful income for Brennan because he really doubled down on email marketing and automation.
0: It was easy because I intentionally built up W Freelancing and all the marketing arms of it to be optimized that if I were to go into a coma, there'd be no impact on cash flow. So everything's automated and still is at this
1: point. So in this episode, we talk about how Brennan built his broad skill set, the job that changed the way he thought about sales, why he built an agency and ultimately closed it down, and how personalization creates a better experience for your audience while also increasing your revenue. Brennan has an incredible newsletter called Create and Sell and a course called Mastering Convert Kit that I can't recommend more highly. We'll talk about both in the interview, and links to both are in the show notes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Jay Klaus. Take a screenshot, tag me, let me know that you're listening. And if you're not already in our listeners community on Facebook, I'd love for you to join. But now, let's talk to Brennan.
0: Before I got into anything I'm doing nowadays, back in uh, early 2000s in, in high school, I uh, almost went to art school. So back then I was going to like Borders Books of Music, got the computer arts magazine with the CD, would go home and do like the little tutorials, trying to figure out like, how do I make this look as grunge as I can, <laughs> right? So I'd get photos in all these filters and stuff. But anyway, that was my crash course, I guess, in design. My issue though, is I never felt I was that creative. Right. So I, I had that kind of typical thing of like, oh, I, I can't, I can't draw. I can use Photoshop, but how much can I really do with that? So switched, uh, shifted gears into teaching myself how to code first with PHP, then in the mid 2000s with Ruby on Rails. And so built up an agency, exited the agency because I, I wanted to build my own software instead of, you know, building it for other people and uh, started a little SaaS in 2011 called PlanScope. And that was my first kind of crash course into the whole like building and selling stuff online. Sold that company in 2016. And the content marketing arm of PlanScope was about freelancing because it was a project management tool and I wrote articles on like pricing and getting Mm. clients and all that kind of stuff. So part of the deal with selling it was I get to keep the content. You can have the software, but I'm keeping the the audience and the content. So that became W Freelancing. Yeah, I just kind of had to learn, I guess, like a lot of us, how to, you know, I'm one guy, how do I keep afloat selling what initially was an ebook in 2012, called double your freelancing rate, which then morphed into a course, got redone a few times, and um kind of expanded from there. So yeah, that that that's kind of how I got into the whole email thing was, you know, I'm I'm kind of that stereotypical lazy programmer who wanted to be able to uh do things once. Like I like with scripting, like set up a campaign of emails one time and then let it run and reap the rewards continuously. So that's what got me into email. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the last 15 years in a nutshell, I guess, that kind of led me to what I'm doing these days.
1: That was a very efficient story Um, (laughs) and open up some new pathways. I didn't know I was going to go down here. So let me take a step back. And you said you almost went to design school, felt like you weren't creative. So then you taught yourself how to code. That to me isn't necessarily like the obvious step, you know, from I can do Photoshop, I guess I better learn how to code. What was the, the forcing function to say, I want to take on this really difficult task of teaching myself how to code?
0: I, I say that I tr- made this big transition, but simultaneous all the Photoshop stuff, I was also like running a very early version of Red Hat Linux on my machine at home, which at the time, just to connect to the internet, you basically had to write your own device drivers. So I was kind of learning the Boolean if-else's and that sort of stuff before deciding, no, design's not for me. But yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed both. And I still do to this day. And that's why I love frameworks like, you know, is polarizing, but Tailwind, because it's kind of like, it's, it's coders who basically created this CSS framework that makes things look nice. And I can work with that because I've always kind of straddled both worlds of, the creative stuff in high school, I used to go every summer to a writing workshop where I did creative writing and and poetry and fiction. And then, you know, I'd come back and I'd get back into screwing around with Linux and, you know, trying to run my own little web server and stuff.
1: Well, one, I think it's a shame. You know, hearing all the things that you were doing, to hear that you had the self-limiting belief that you didn't believe you're creative, all those things are such innately creative things. And I don't know why it is that so often a lot of us are brought up thinking that we aren't creative if we can't draw, if we can't sketch. And I don't know what that is, but we got to fix that culturally. You mentioned that you started an agency after you started to learn to code and put these things together. That's another, another to me, not obvious next step to me. Maybe an obvious next step is to take a job. So where did you build the confidence that you could start a business or an interest that you could start a business as opposed to working at an agency
0: there were two jobs in between finishing college and um in the agency so i did work at an agency which is where i learned how agencies work so i did that for about a year and before that i worked at a company that funny enough this is down i was just out of college and i was living in south florida and i looked up on like indeed or whatever one of those job boards Found a um because I wanted to do programming, and I found a a job that did uh, Flash development, which I thought was kind of cool. So I, I I took that job, and what they did was there was this framework called Flex, which was like Flash with Java or something on the back end that I kind of immersed myself in with this job. And this company, all they did was they they would they had this kind of productized offering where. They'd run Google AdWords saying, hey, if you're a mortgage person or real estate and want to generate leads, come to us for exclusive leads. And what they did is they sold their clients on single page landing pages built in flash, would have like houses like fade in and like a little person avatar scroll over or whatever, that they would basically run the AdWords to these dedicated landing pages. And then if somebody opted in, they would then deliver that lead in real time to the realtor, which was really big back in like, this is two thousand four, so this was like most of the people were buying off a of lending tree or these shared lead type things, and this was a really interesting thing. And and for me, I was fascinated by it because I was like, people are paying a hundred dollars for a name and an email address and a phone number, which blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, but then I then I learned about how the backend worked, and I was like, okay, they make like five thousand if they sell it, you know, off their mortgage commission or whatever, and you get like, you know, ten leads. You close one, it cost you a thousand dollars to get a to get a deal. It's a pretty good deal. That stuck with me. That whole lead gen form optimization. They were running a lot of. They were they were paying for a lot because basically they they footed the ad bill for their clients and paid them a flat mm-hmm. price per lead. So what was interesting to me was they really had to if they could increase conversions substantially they would basically up their margins if that makes sense. And where how this stuck with me was that in doing that. They started to do personalization type stuff or customization, I should say, where they would do things like, oh, if you were searching from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, they're gonna basically drop Fort Lauderdale on the landing page somewhere mm. and uh, just do kind of geolocation on the fly and substituting out content. And they would, you know, they did it because it it made their cost per lead cheaper. So that's kind of in a way the beginnings of what led me to what I'm doing now. In in a, in a strange way, it started from kind of that experience, but that was a full-time job. Didn't last very long, moved to the agency. They were not remote. So had to kind of quit, did freelancing and got to the point where I could either turn away work or I could, um, scale a team. So I decided to scale a team.
1: How long do you sit with that decision? Because a lot of people get to that point where they're freelancing they get to a point where it's like, I am at capacity, but to scale a team, is either really unknown to them or if they know the trade-offs, they recognize that it's a pretty big chasm to cross. So how long did you sit with this idea of, do I just want to increase my prices, stay here, or scale a team?
0: So I started freelancing full-time, and then a year later, which was early 2009, is when I hired the first person to work with me. Now, when I say hired, bear in mind, initially that was just a contractor. So I was subcontracting at work. So it wasn't like I didn't have WP2 payroll or anything like that just yet. Got that up to about five people who were subbing for me. These were people that I met at like Ruby conferences and little code camps I was doing up in the DC area. Decided to go out kind of on a limb, this is the hard thing, and and open up a physical office and convert people, if they would, into full-time employees. Otherwise, to start bringing on full-time employees. Did the office thing, moved to a bigger office because we outgrew it. And got to the point where we had 11 people on, t- on the team and we were doing pretty much all Greenfield custom web applications, some mobile apps, but mostly web apps. And at around this time, I took a course from Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman called 30 by 500. And this is early 2011. So one of the early cohort-based online courses. It's not a new thing. And um, did that and I it just kind of opened my eyes to the whole, you know, wouldn't you rather have 500 people paying you 30 a month And instead of like three clients paying you 20 grand each a month and needing to chase around invoices and stuff. So definitely got bit by that bug. And the agency stuff got very, I was very demotivated to keep doing that. So I decided to, on a whim again, start a SaaS product called PlanScope, which was just a project management tool Did the quintessential agency builds a project management piece of software type thing that or crm i guess and i um and i built that and then i exited the agency i handed it off to a person who was doing sales for me and effectively sold it yeah went into a uh, full-time online higher scale stuff
1: what about that work or what about that point in time became demotivating for you was it the administrative stuff was it selling
0: it's administrative honestly if you if you if you really psychoanalyze my thought process back then. It would have been, I didn't like, even though we had a good pipeline of work, I didn't like knowing that I was, I'd basically created a nine to five for myself because my employees would get resentful if I was out at conferences, and which I thought is legitimate lead generation things. But obviously I'm out at like the after parties at an event and having drinks and mingling with people and all that stuff. So there was a, kind of a percolation in the office and, and I blame myself. I mean, I should have probably created a better culture that this wouldn't be an, as big of an issue, but the feedback was we're here because we wanted to work with Brennan, but Brennan's never here. And my justification was, look, I'm on the road doing what, like, if I'm sat in my office, I'm not, that, that doesn't help, right? Yeah. I just, I kind of resented that, to be honest. I resented feeling kind of captive to this job I'd created for myself. And I really, I like the idea of that kind of that passive income, not not as much the passive side, but more of the location independence. I could go and create some software, have a lot of people who are paying me a little bit and none of them have any sway. Because the fact of the matter is we would have three, maybe four clients at any given time. And if one of them called saying, Brennan, we need this done now. I mean, I would make sacrifices to make that happen, but I really liked I, I know they've call, kind of fallen off a cliff lately, but you know, back when Basecamp before they were them and thirty-seven signals, their whole thing was we don't do enterprise customers because we don't want to be beholden to any one customer. So as an agency owner, I was like, wow, that sounds great. Like I would love to not be beholden to any single one customer. So I think that that's largely what kind of demotivated me out of the agency.
1: And not only is it a nine to five that you created for yourself, but you're also responsible for making sure you're bringing in enough projects to pay the payroll, which I imagine was pretty heavy on you if you had 11 right. employees.
0: There was one time where I couldn't make payroll and I had to borrow money from a buddy of mine who had an agency. When your expenses are, I mean, our, I think we peaked at like 60 or 70,000 a month in, in expenses. When you know just to break even, you need to bring in that much monthly. It, it, and you don't, it's not recurring revenue. It's transactional, right? It's people who uh, they need a new app build Great. I mean, it'll take a few months, but when they finish up, there's now a vacancy, right? So, I mean, I think if, who knows, if I would have had a, a, a very, you know, retainer-based recurring model or something where all of our clients were paying us a set fee monthly and it was just like a SaaS but bigger amounts monthly, it might have not been as big of a deal for me, but it was just that constant churn of new clients coming in and always wondering, It's fine now, but three months from now, you know, how am I going to have that 60,000 a month coming in?
1: After a quick break, Brandon and I talk about what happens when a client project is a failure, even if you deliver on what was asked. And a little bit later, we talk about why he eventually chose to close down his agency right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link/j. That's u link r e e n.dot.link/slash/j, and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. One of Brennan's not-so-secret skills is his knack for selling. When he was running his agency, even though his projects were more transactional than recurring, they were big projects. So it seemed to me like he probably picked up a lot of great sales insight when he was running that agency.
0: I remember the first networking event I went to when I decided to kind of go out on my own. People would come up to me and and do the, you know, you did the usual, like, so what is it you do kind of thing when you mingle around the room? And I I remember telling somebody that I owned a Ruby shop. So because, you know, Ruby on Rails. And if I was at a Ruby conference, that's what I would say. But I'm here with like a banker or something or some real estate agent who thinks I'm a jeweler um, or (laughs) something at this point, right? So there was that kind of reprogramming in my mind of why is it that people are paying money for code and, and really... It took, I think it took me kind of getting in between my team who was doing most of the doing and the clients to really internalize that people weren't just wanting to cut really large checks for lines of code. They, you know, there was a business outcome that I, I kind of always knew was there. I think we all know is there. But until I started to think about how do I then sell the business outcome instead of selling the talent or the tech, that's when things for me really shifted, was when I really started to internalize that and started to. Bake into the whole sales process. Well, how do I learn about what it is? You, what is the goal you need to get to? How are you firing your existing website or your existing app? Like, what did they do wrong, and what is this new thing that we're going to be building for you? What does that need to do differently? Because I, I think what I what I realized, which I know a lot of us end up realizing, is that you can technically succeed, but it can still be a failure, right? Like you can still you can build the right thing that was ordered, but it could flop. And I, I, I think we all have in our portfolio probably client projects where even though we built the, the thing they asked us to build, it it didn't pan out or be successful. So say
1: more about that. Why why would something technically successful be a flop?
0: Yeah. So I mean, we would have like for instance, we had a um there's one client that wanted to build this kind of social network for musicians and venues like bars and restaurants that needed live musicians. And we absolutely sold the hell out of him on things like private messaging between the two and all these like social media things like groups and stuff. We basically built a very normal social network for him. The problem is he, he never, we never encouraged him to go out and actually validate that this is something that the market needed. And we never actually conveyed to him that when you have this marketplace model of you've got, you know, buyers and sellers, you've got the, the restaurants and the bars and the, the musicians, it's really hard to do a multi-sided marketplace like that out of the gate, unless you really know what you're doing and have big marketing spend behind you and so on and so forth. So I think that even though we we built what he needed, we built what he told us to build, at the end of the day, his his startup went down in a ball of flame, right? Like and, and it wasn't I, I like to think at the end, you know, at the time I was probably thinking that, well, it's not our fault. It's like if if you if I one thing that I I put in one of my courses, this example I use all the time is if I sell a pizzeria, the the most amazing brick oven in the world, but they use shoddy ingredients and they open up in a crappy location and no one ever comes in the door and buys, is is it my fault as the vendor of that oven for them not succeeding as a pizzeria? And that's something I think we all need to kind of wrestle with. Is it our job when we're working with clients To kind of get involved on the business side of things, which I think I know a lot of freelancers especially really struggle with doing that because they. I think we all tend to think, I know I did, that the client's already figured all this stuff out. Like they're coming to us after they've already figured out the whole business side of things. But, you know, let's face it, a lot of us, we have our ears to the ground. We know what's happening in the world of technology. And if we're getting commissioned to build, say, a web application for somebody, I think it's our job to not just execute technically, but execute Correctly, and and that means being a bit of a filter, and and really coaching and working with the client on figuring out how do we get you from to where you need to be as safely and reliably as possible. And sometimes, I mean, that might be as simple as starting with a type form form and a bunch of no code type things before you know somebody's ready to take that next step.
1: This is really interesting because I want to play this out a little bit to think through this. Like to me, it makes a ton of sense if you're optimizing for. ROI for the customer mm-hmm. and therefore a positive experience for them, probably a testimonial for you, maybe even repeat work down the line. If you deliver what is asked for and it fails because they didn't do proper diligence, I mean, like the failure is probably not a positive <laughs> testimonial, not repeat work. Are there other major downsides here that I'm missing that are even more problematic?
0: I think it's just the fact that, like you said, I mean, there's not going to be repeat work. You could, you could use it as a case study. Even though it wasn't the, I mean, I think we all want in our portfolio clients who grew because of our input. But I think at the end of the day, like if you're if you're say a web designer or a developer or something like that, the thing that I think is probably the best thing you can do to not only increase your value and and what you're able to charge, but also the likelihood that you get referrals, the likelihood that you go on to grow bigger and better, is to say, all right, I'm a designer. They want a new website built but what is the job of the website the job of the website is to generate leads or generate sales or something like that so how do how do i allow how do i enable design to that end right rather than just focusing on the aesthetics and what it looks like and what size is the logo and you know that kind of stuff right so i think even though yeah at the end of the day if we if we build what was ordered and it it's a failure i i would agree that i don't think it's it's not necessarily our fault just like the oven being bought by the Shoddy pizzeria isn't the fault of the manufacturer. But I do think if we want to have a really strong portfolio of clients who have done really, really well, because let's face it, businesses hire people to make more money or lose less money. So if we can show that we've done that, why wouldn't you want to have that outcome?
1: (laughs) Totally. It's pretty clear to me that Brennan has definitely taken the approach of going the extra mile to help his customers be successful, even if it's harder or requires more effort in the beginning. And this started with the content he was creating to support the customers of his software product, PlanScope. But he told me it wasn't long until that content was working so well that he began to question the software altogether.
0: With PlanScope, you know, I built, I did the marketing site, I did the validation y type stuff, and and built a very small launch list. But I think I, I, I underestimated how hard it was to sell software, specifically online. So what I, Thought I would do, which again, this this actually came out of Amy and um, Alex's uh, 30 by five hundred program was this idea of content bombs, as they called it, right, or um, or value bombs. I forgot what they called it, <laughs> but basically the idea was just what we all take for granted now, which is build really good pieces of content that meet somebody where, where they're today. So, you know, my thinking was if I can get somebody who's googling how do I get clients or how do I raise my prices, they're probably not actually looking for software. They're not looking for project management software, but The right profile of somebody who could use the software. So, the mistake I made early on was I did that and I did it somewhat successfully because back then there wasn't much online for like freelancing advice. So, this is again 10 years ago. I was doing this, but the mistake that I made was the call to action on the articles was to sign up for a trial of PlanScope. And the disconnect that came from, I think, a discussion at MicroConf uh, a few years later was if somebody is looking for how do I raise my rates and then they read an article and they get to the end of it, meaning they haven't bounced. And then they're seeing a a promotion for some project management tool that they want you to start. They're not in a software buying mood. They're in a rate, rate raising mood, right? Like that's what they're doing at the moment. So I shifted toward an opt-in instead for a five-day crash course on freelancing. And the idea there was to, you know, build a list and then just kind of Send out good content, and then kind of softly mention this software product that's associated with with the uh, with the content. Now, I did that, but funny enough, more people were interested in diving deeper into the content side of things than the software, right? So, I would get accounts, but that led me to uh, create an ebook at the time called W Freelancing Rate, which was the number one issue that people kept going on about, which was how do I start focusing on value and pricing on value and so on. That then turned into the consultancy masterclass, which was a two-day cohort class that I ran from 2012 to 2013 that was on um, building an agency. So it was a two-day weekend type thing. And that led to uh, multiple conferences, one in the US, one in Europe every year, and a podcast and all that stuff. And it did well. Kind of the heyday was 2016-ish, I think. And yeah, I mean, it was just interesting because I built this thing, but thinking that it would generate leads for the software... It generally leads, but they wanted, they wanted more educational and, and kind of coaching stuff, right? So I ended up thinking, I can't keep juggling the, the SaaS and the other side, you know, the majority side, the th- side that's actually paying me like a lot more than the SaaS. So I ended up selling the SaaS.
1: In that moment before you sold the SaaS, yeah. how did that feel to you to be like, I built this thing in the purpose of selling SaaS? And now this thing is working and the SaaS still isn't selling.
0: It was demoralizing as hell, honestly. Cuz I was like, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing the whole like if if you're supposed to do content marketing if you have a SaaS and I'm doing content marketing but they don't want the SaaS. What's wrong with this picture?
1: <laughs> and so you weren't you weren't just like giddy like, "Okay, I guess I'm doing digital products now." You were like, "Why isn't this working?" I it wasn't yeah. I'm going to jump into this full force because this is working. It was no, this why was isn't this working?
0: I, I left the agency with with some savings and the revenue from Saston displaced that the money I was you know burning and it was more immediate revenue <laughs> to be honest it was better than getting back into consulting so you know that that's what led me to do that And my mind was blown because i was doing like i had this 20 person weekend workshop that i charged 1000 a head for and i'd make you know i'd bring in 20000 in a weekend and the SaaS was doing like 2000 a month at the time. And I was like, <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> you know, I mean, the 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 lazy programmer in me wanted the SaaS to just keep doing its thing because I, I much preferred the kind of consistently recurring revenue model. But um, the pragmatist in me was thinking, well, wow, this is doing kind of well.
1: It's so interesting. People's story around money that they'd be willing to pay a thousand dollars for a weekend workshop, but probably when they're looking at a pricing page that says, hey, this is $10 a month. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's too expensive. Yeah, 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 it's it's so bizarre. Yeah, it is. When we come back, Brennan and I talk about how he's automated double your freelancing to continue generating significant revenue without needing any attention whatsoever. And before we round out this conversation, we talk about his new software product, WriteMessage, that can help you to do the same. So stick around and we'll be right back. Welcome back to my conversation with email marketing extraordinaire, Brennan Dunn. Brennan had sold his SaaS company, PlanScope, in 2015 and was focusing full-time on Double Your Freelancing for the next two years. He had been digging deep into personalization on the Double Freelancing site, and in 2017, a new opportunity for software emerged.
0: I was doing twice annual conferences, and I was producing content, and people were liking it and buying it, and it's all good and well. And I think I did get bit by the... SAS bug, I think. I I just, I kind of missed having software that I was selling. How it came about was um, Anker, the CEO of Teachable, reached out to me and and saw what I was doing because we had known each other for a while and he saw what I was doing with personalization on W freelancing. So, where this came about was people would come to like my course sales pages, so W freelancing rate, and they would email me, or a few people, I should say, would email me. Saying, "Hey, I'm a copywriter. I heard about your course. Looks good, but like all those, all the testimonials are from developers and designers, and it it seems very developerish. Can this help me?" And I'd reply saying, "Honestly, it's agnostic. Like I don't, none of it is specific to what kind of work you do. As long as you work for businesses." It took me a while, but I, I eventually realized that you know, there's probably a lot of other people who thought that but didn't bother emailing me. So I thought, well, what if I could what if I could ask people what kind of work do you do? And then when the copywriter shows up on the sales page, just do some if-else with wizardry to just show the copywriter testimonials because I had them. So I started doing that. And then I went beyond that because I would do things like I'd have an email course that would lead to that product. And I'd ask people when they join the email course, what are they hoping the email course helps them achieve? Do they are they losing out on proposals? Do they want to start pricing on value? Are they just starting out with freelancing and they want to know how to price in general. And then what I would do is I'd change the pitch they'd get emailed and the sales pitch that the pitch would lead them to to reflect that core issue. And then sales started to go up a lot. So basically I realized effectively that I was able to deliver a niche experience, which niche businesses always perform better than generic businesses for that niche, but without actually needing to niche anything. So I got really into that. And I was, it, it turned on all my developer-ish tendencies. I did that for a few different. So I, I wasn't doing any consulting, but a few bigger companies reached out saying, "We've seen your tweets. Can you do something like that for us?" So companies like Gumroad and some others hired me to do a little small gig for them, and I did that a few times. And then Anker reached out to Teachable saying, "Hey, we want this, but we wanted a software. Can we raise around funding uh, with a syndicate, and you can also get some other investors, and we can make this a real thing." So, wow.
1: someone came to you and said, We want to help raise around the funding yeah, for software yeah, for you to yeah. build.
0: Yeah. And they, they were kind of the majority investor, but we also raised some other money. We raised about 600,000. So it's not a ton, but it kind of helped us start, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I partnered up with Shai, my co founder. He's the technical guy, I'm the marketing salesperson. We built a SaaS and, uh, the problem is we, we've, we've realized that personalization is so brand new for a lot of people that um, we've completely are in the process of shifting, not pivoting, but shifting the focus of how we position the product
1: as a result. How did you then now again balance, well, now I have a SaaS product, I have a content product. The content product doesn't necessarily feed this SaaS product. This SaaS product could use its own content. How did you start managing your time in that world?
0: I didn't take a salary from right Message for a while. And all my income came from automation on W freelancing. So I wanted to be in the position that if I never need to log into at the time it was Drip, now convert it. If I never need to log and convert it again, the business still works really well.
1: And to, to make this explicit, you're saying this is all automated through email mainly. So walk me through like what types of automations are happening in email that is making this work, run, generate profit for you.
0: So how I've designed it is at the point of ingress. So when somebody opts in I segment them. I, I segment about 80 85% of people on a confirmation page into things of around what kind of work they do, what stage their business is at, what their goals are immediately and so on. And then they get sent into a, a personalized email crash course that leads them to a paid product pitch that's evergreen where they get a week long window just like a live launch but for them where there's a discount attached and you know, the, the goal is to convert a lot of those people into early sales quickly. The majority of them won't buy. So they get into a 52-week-long evergreen, shadow, I call it a shadow newsletter, but evergreen newsletter, where back behind that newsletter is this bit of automation that I call an offer funnel, where what it does is it looks at all that segment data along with what kind of articles you're reading and what you've bought already. And it basically calculates what should Jay buy next for me right? So if you, I think you should buy, master, and convert it. So it would set that on your record. And then every week in the newsletter that goes out at like clockwork every Thursday, there'd be an explicit personalized call to action in it that would link you to that product. So the goal was to get myself written center weekly and to soft promote a product, but then every quarter to do a live launch, which is just for you, of that product that is recommended for you. Now, if you were to buy that product, Subsequent emails and subsequent automated launches would then be based off of how the offer calc- or the offer funnel recomputes what you should buy next. So if you buy this, everything you, you stop getting promoted that and now you're getting promoted this. So it's basically just a, a giant Turing machine of things that are looking at inputs. What has Jay told us explicitly, along with how is Jay behaving, and then it's crunching what based off. My own, I mean, I I wish there was more machine learning involved, but it's not. It's just me thinking if if you fit this profile and you haven't bought this, then you should buy this and so on and so forth. And that just, that just works because people don't care if the email that they're receiving today was written that morning by me or a year ago, as long as it's helpful for them.
1: If you're like me, this strategy of automation may be blowing your mind. And you might think that for Brennan to customize his emails for three different audiences, he would need to write three different variants of each type of email that he wanted to send. But actually, that's not the case. Instead, he uses a coding tool called Liquid to personalize his messages within a single email.
0: Some email marketing platforms, notably ConvertKit and others, utilize something called Liquid Templating, which allows you to inline add conditional content. So I would have a single email. But I might change the subject of it to say something like, designers, colon, here's what you need to raise your rates today. And I might include a sentence or a quick one-liner testimonial that would just be switched off of what kind of work they do. So here's a designer testimonial, here's a developer testimonial, or something like that. And the goal there is just to make it so the email is slightly more relevant to them, even though the majority of the content of the email is identical. But it helps with open rates because they see themselves in the subject. They see... An example, and this really shines in like pitch emails, not as much newsletters, but definitely pitch emails, where you can really focus in on. I know this is the thing you're currently struggling with because you've told me, or you're on my website and you're reading mostly articles about marketing, so I can infer you have a marketing issue, and I'm going to then focus the the positioning of this product to be centered on either what you've told me or how you're behaving, just like I would in person, like if, if if you know, if somebody comes to me at a conference and they are like, "Hey, I'm a web designer. I've heard about your course. I'm just starting out. Do you think it's it's for me?" I would absolutely tailor how I describe the thing with them in mind. I wouldn't talk about like agencies who who've bought the course or anything like that. It's the same concept, just done through conditional content, and it doesn't require. If you have five, This is the mistake people make is because you can you can layer different things. You can say. I want to change this bit of the email based off of their experience and then that bit based off of the kind of work they do. If there's three experience levels and five different types of work, you don't need 15 unique different pieces of email. You need a single email with some very easily written liquid conditional content.
1: I know all this is in mastering convert kit. And now between mastering convert kit and your new project, create and sell, I can tell that you're really focusing on creating excellent content for like the advanced email marketer, the aspirationally advanced email marketer. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because that is a hole that I've also seen, like as someone who's trying to learn this stuff, all roads lead to Brennan when I'm trying to learn these things. So how did you start to realize that you were in a position where people who were doing this type of work didn't have content that was really serving them?
0: I mean, it makes sense why, but I I, I think like a lot of the content you find online about email marketing tends to be more, to be blunt, beginner focused, right? And I know I know why it's that way. There's there's volume reasons why it's that way. But I think just like if if everything when I was learning how to code, if everything stopped at how do you install Ruby or how do you, you know, get a basic hello hello world app up. I yeah, I mean it would be I wouldn't have advanced at all, right? So I think what I'm trying to do with Create and Sell is to try to say others who have a real business that they are currently running where their products are offering, they're mostly doing their sales through email marketing, they have an audience and you want to amplify this and you're ready to go beyond just the usual broadcast emails you send out from time to time. And then like, oh, it's my calendar says it's May 12th. So I'm going to shut down the list for a week and do a live launch pitch thing. You want to get away from that and you want to focus more on automation. And, and, and the angle that I'm trying to, to, to also take with create and sell is that automation doesn't necessarily mean it's it's just for the person doing the automating. Like, I, th- I think there's this idea that if, you, if you've automated everything, you just sit on a beach somewhere with a Corona and like, that's your end goal. It's like that whole like Lambo with the mansion passive income thing.
1: Here in my garage, just bought this uh, new Lamborghini here. It's fun to drive up here in the Hollywood Hills.
0: The argument I'm trying to make is that Automation done right allows you to deliver the most relevant content to the right person at the right time. So, If somebody's getting content that's more relevant to them and more specific to their needs at their stage and where they are, then they're more likely to keep reading your content. They're less likely to unsubscribe. They're more likely to really pay attention when you contact them, which the net effect of that is going to be more people are willing to buy from you. So, My argument is that automation done right, personalization done right, and the underlying segmentation data, which is required for personalization done right, is going to lead for a more engaged email list. And, I mean, obviously you need good content too, but more engaged email list that translates into more revenue for us. So that's the whole long and short of what I'm trying to do with it is to say, if you can stop treating everyone identically and just going in and saying, we're going to create a new broadcast and send it out to everyone and the only personalization is sticking somebody's first name that they already know at the top of the email. There's more we can do. And if we can do that, it's better for everyone involved.
1: It's clear to me, especially using tools like right Message, how you can do personalization in email. But we don't see this on like Instagram. Like, mm-hmm. will, will we ever see personalization when I'm looking at videos on Instagram or videos on YouTube? Do you see it entering different mediums? I mean, it's,
0: there's, there's macro personalization happening where you're absolutely being served a timeline that is based off of in previous consumption behavior on your part. But then on the micro side, meaning the individual post, there's no personalization. That's one of the arguments I have for why email is better, <laughs> is that it's, it's truly one-to-one rather than if I tweet right now on Twitter, it's one-to-many and there's no permutations of my tweet at all the yeah so i i don't know if it'll ever be i mean it, it's hard to say because with the people you know the powers that be that control the different platforms like will twitter ever have conditional content and, and how how would that even work i could see it more on facebook's side because they capture more information about you know likes and dislikes and locate. Okay, i guess twitter does too but i mean the, the extent of it that i've i've seen it used and i think Uh, wasn't there some thing that hit the internet a few days back where it was someone that was kicked off of some platform and they basically were running ads that were saying like, Instagram knows X, Y, and Z about you or something. And all they were doing was doing layered targeting. So they were saying, here's an ad that says you like baseball, you live in New York, and you, I don't know, like the color blue or something. You've told Facebook this because you put it in your profile somewhere. So they're running an ad saying, I'm going to target... Baseball plus New York plus blue. And here's the ad creative that we're going to serve them. And funny enough, that's, if you remember the Cambridge Analytica issue with um, the Trump campaign way back when, that was the issue they were doing, which was literally, what is the thing you care about the most? You know, pro-life, taxes, whatever. You tell the Trump campaign you care most about taxes, and suddenly you're getting a lot of content about his tax stuff. Like That was the root of the issue. And I personally didn't see anything wrong with that because that's literally, I think, what we're supposed to be doing, which is reacting to inputs that we're getting. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's the stuff that the extent of it, I think, on social networks will be pretty much that being able to run very targeted ads based off demographic inputs.
1: You are creating this content that is like at the cutting edge of the top end of people who are trying to do email marketing. That boundary will continuously move. So how are you thinking about, will you continue to move with the cutting edge or will you continue to be in this void that you're finding now, which is like the next step after the beginner stuff?
0: And I hope so, because I, I keep redoing constantly the course, the converted course, because I, I find, I think, better ways of doing it, which is largely from customer interaction, right? So somebody will try something and then they're like, oh, I want to make it so, you know, we can do this or that instead and then we'll brainstorm a bit and then we'll, we'll find a better way of doing it. Like I've actually, I used to do all of my, what are called glossary automations, which are ways of saying, given somebody's inputs, how should I speak to them, right? So the end goal would be able to say, hey, as a blank, as a design agency, as a freelance developer, as a freelance marketer, and just have that blank that gets auto-populated with that where you're combining, are they solo or an agency? And then what they do. So that used to be done through a giant visual automation in ConvertKit, now it's done through a single content snippet. So I've actually changed my whole thinking on that. So I'm, I'm, I think what I love about the Mastering ConvertKit specifically community is it's 400 plus people who are kind of the upper echelon of people who are doing really finding creative ways of breaking ConvertKit. And you know, one, one perk of that, I think, is that we're helping ultimately, hopefully building a better product and better email marketing platform But we're also finding really new and creative ways to do what I was getting at, which is how do we make it so we're able to stay individually relevant, even though this is a campaign that's going to hundreds of thousands
1: of people. Brennan has built such an incredible set of businesses here and the way he utilizes personalization and automation to run W Freelancing without putting much additional effort into it is so incredible and just so aspirational believe me when I tell you that most passive income schemes are much, much harder than guys like Ty Lopez and their garage are willing to tell you. But it's not impossible. And Brennan's approach to using email marketing is a prime example of what is possible. If you want to follow along with Brennan, you can find him on Twitter at Brennan Dunn. I really recommend his new create and sell newsletter. And if you really want to go deeper in his incredible email marketing course, you can pick up Mastering ConvertKit. Links to both are in the show notes thanks to Brendan for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at Klaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.